This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Anderson Cooper and Lviv. When I was asked to record some episodes for this podcast, I thought I'd try to take you behind the stories that you may be watching from Ukraine. To do that, I've been talking with some of the best journalists covering the fighting and the humanitarian crisis it's created. Reporters are certainly not the story here, but they have chosen to come and cover the story here. And I'm sort of interested in understanding why. Why are some people drawn to this work, drawn to witnessing up close the reality, the horror of war? What is the tug war has on some of the people who cover it? And you can see around me, there's been quite significant destruction here over the past 48 hours. That building clearly took a direct hit. Presumably... Today I'm talking with CNN International Security Editor Nick Payton Walsh from CNN. This is Tug of War. Okay, good morning. Merci, Chifleur. Au revoir. Uh, cool. So, Nick, where are you right now? Uh, I'm in a hotel room in Odessa, having just uh, had our one substantial meal of the day. So, life is fairly comfortable. And you've been traveling all across the south. I mean, you're in Odessa now. You've been in Mariupol. Uh, you've been in Nikolaev, Kherson. Can you just talk a little bit about what it's been like? So our kind of gig has been to head out to Kherson initially because our interest there was that that was very much the major city on the way up from Crimea. If you're going to try and bring the large amount of troops that were stationed and were kind of rallying in Crimea up into the fight in the north, they'd have to go that way, and they certainly did. So we started out in Kherson, and then that fell, and then we've been in Mykolaiv on off for the past sort of 10 days or so. And... In, in Mariupol, obviously, we, we saw the uh, maternity uh, ward, the maternity hospital that, that was bombed, the images that came out of that. Uh, that city is, we've seen a mass grave that has been dug for Ukrainians who have died there. That's where they're being placed. The situation is really desperate, it seems, in, in Mariupol and, and very tenuous. And Mikolaev is, is certainly in the, in the crosshairs as well. Yeah, I mean, I think a city like Mykolaiv, which is still thriving, you know, but deserted at night, looks at Mariupol as the worst case scenario. But I think anyone who looks at how Russia wages wars and how it perceives victory resembling the ruins, the place that it's fighting over, shouldn't be too surprised about what's happened in Mariupol. It doesn't make it any less ghastly or devastating, but it's not like it's a, a shock departure from the Russian playbook, surrounding a place, bombarding it repeatedly, concocting farcical, embarrassing stories about how they did do it, or maybe they didn't do it, or maybe Ukrainian nationalists are somehow to blame. Is It's just very much what we've been used to hearing from Russia since it first started out here in 2014. Is that part of the reason Moscow is decimating Mariupol in yeah. order to have it be a warning to the rest of Ukraine? I mean, is it in a way, uh, if it's a harbinger of things to come, is it also a, are they trying to just terrify and 
break the will of Ukrainians. Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to, you know, give them too much credit for sophistication in terms of a psychological strategy here. You know, it kind of Moscow is what it does. It turns up, it surrounds places, and it flattens them. It doesn't seem to know, you know, how to sophisticatedly explain to a population that their fate lies in a different direction. But Mariupol is important for. I mean, it depends. You know, initially we were all trying to work out what if this is really happening. What does Putin actually want? Because the full-scale invasion of a nation of 44 million people that's larger than France is a preposterous idea. And it still remains so, even though they seem to be trying it. It's just absurd that Putin, even in the best version of the army he may have kidded himself he had, that Putin thought he could do that. And so what are the lesser versions, right? Do you just take recognition of the areas that you already have? Well, why bother going through all this and isolating Russia from the entire global economy? So is there a halfway between full domination of an entire country that really hates you right now or some sort of middle way? And maybe the longer term land corridor idea from the separatist areas in the east of the country down through to Crimea is possibly something which Russia may think it can get out of this, quote unquote, because always, you know, I mean, the initial wars in 14 and 15 left them with this peninsula that was amazing holiday destination that was rich in historical links to Russia, the Crimea, but it had no link to the rest of Russia. And so they were expensive job of using bridges and pipelines to get basic utilities in. And so that was a non-starter in the long term for Moscow. And so maybe some sort of land corridor makes sense, but you still got to ask yourself, like, what is the long term future? of a town like Mariupol under Russian rule after what's happened to it now. And how is it that you do your job? I mean, how do you get around? How do you decide where to go? I mean, you know, we saw this piece recently you did um, in, in Mikolaev or around Mikolaev, and you were in a number of different locations. And it, I mean, do you just come upon? I mean, the we had an escort for that Mikolaev piece, and that dictates a little bit where you're going. But sometimes, too, it it takes you completely the wrong place. When we initially got there, we had this police patrol who were told to kind of hang with us and look after us, and they'd never like escorted journalists before, so we could literally tell them anything, and they would take us anywhere. <laughs> And so they drove us straight into the hospital and said, help these people. And they drove us straight up to this roundabout where there'd just been heavy fighting. And there was a Russian Tigre armoured vehicle on fire. They left the tank or? Uh, they needed to do that. Right. OK, they didn't have much of a choice. They, yeah, they, they and we just drove up in the middle of it and they stopped and they were like, this is where you want to be, right? And I was like, uh, uh. Uh, the Ukrainian soldiers came running up to us going like, what are you doing? And these four journos pile out of a van in, in vests saying like, oh, here we are. And very quickly... There's a helicopter coming. Bringing up the stinger. You realise that you are in the wrong place and just for the benefit of everyone listening, it was actually fine. But um, it's just about listening and watching around you. Because if you go to a place with a preconceived idea of what you're going to find or people you want to meet or how you're going to quote-unquote tell the story, you just miss it. The, the things I love about reporting in the field and this kind of a story is that nothing you can imagine in advance or you're sitting around in your, your room at night thinking, okay, well, tomorrow we maybe we should do this. Nothing you can imagine you're going to get is as interesting as what you actually stumble upon and find. And the ability to just, you know, in, in regular times, often, you know, the job is making phone calls and, you know, finding a subject and inter pre-interviewing them. And there's a lot of logistical stuff that goes into it. This is 
every day it is different and you have no idea where the day is going to take you and you you're riding that breaking wave of of the moment of of history no it's just mad entropy wherever you look everything is sort of spiraling into infinite increased chaos in in something like this and it is it is it's just important to to keep tabs on what you're actually seeing not what you think you're seeing um and allow people the chance to tell you what they really feel or just to to be themselves when your camera's around and so much of what's important about when we turn up in a place is to not be noticed it's just to be sure that a lot of the time like I don't even want to be in the interviews if you know if someone's talking to our translator and they're getting on fine like a massive tall white guy blundering into a room speaking bad Russian is exactly the worst thing for people to be themselves and so yeah a lot of it's just about allowing the kind of incredible cameraman we have here Bruce Lane to to film the things as they happen and capture that. We know the um, danger, we know that it will come, but we didn't know when will it come. And uh, uh, I asked them, uh, children, come here, please, be safe, come to me. But they didn't want, no, mom, please stay alive, stay safe, but we will defend our, because everybody loves our, uh, our motherland, everybody. <laughs> Sorry. The woman uh, who was doing the camouflage netting, a mom, Everybody wants to be independent, to be free. I was so moved by that moment when, when you broadcasted because it is, it is just, it is somebody opening themselves up to you. But I pray every day, I pray every night for them to stay alive. Your team has arrived there and I don't know how long you were in that room, but not probably not for a very long period of time. It's not like you built up a huge relationship with this person over many, many hours and days. And yet, you know, her willingness to to just talk is, I don't know, I think there's something so beautiful and remarkable. I mean, it's those moments I just think are remarkable. Yeah, she was talking to Natalie, our producer, and Natalie was like getting her to like completely open up. And she said, do you want to come and do this interview? And I was like, well, why would I want to go and do that? I've got to ruin it. I mean, you carry on, off he goes. But you're that you you are that tiny moment where they feel that they're actually possibly being heard outside of the community that's all banding together to try and get themselves through this and so that's what's incumbent on us when we do this job is to be as absent from the story as possible and make them the people who get heard and be sure that i mean like we was in this the guy i spoke to in the morgue who broke down and started talking about his friends in crimea who were telling him that the war that was making his family hide in a basement simply wasn't happening. He just came up to us and just started bawling. I mean, he was showing us around the morgue. He was totally, totally clinical, describing the bodies, describing the 20 incinerated corpses that had been heaved in from a missile strike, and then going through everything very systematically, and then he just totally broke down. And talked for 20 minutes into our camera because he just felt this was his only chance for anybody to listen to what was going on. It's the silencing of people's worst emotions that happens in wars like this that makes people feel totally alone and uh, unheard. And if you have any chance of reversing that emotion, then that's really important part of our job. We'll be right back.
This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I didn't know anything about your career, frankly. You look at the places, I mean, Pakistan, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Zimbabwe, Russia, the Soviet, former Soviet Georgia, Sri Lanka, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, Chechnya, Central African Republic. I mean, what interests you about a, a conflict? I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's a really ugly question to answer, to be honest, because it goes into things about are you drawn to the tension? Are you drawn to the act of survival? Are you drawn to the um, despair around you or the drama? I sort of strangely feel comfortable doing this. And the more you do it, the more comfortable you feel doing it, which is totally wrong because there's nothing comforting or comfortable about these places. But I sort of feel like it's something I have a handle on. And I mean, I, I, I worked in Baby Gap, folding tiny T-shirts. I've worked as a guy lifting tables in a corporate bank for a bit. I've had different jobs that aren't as interesting. And this is a uh, this is a very interesting, privileged place to be. And there shouldn't be privilege in watching people's worst moments of their lives, but it's um, you're also documenting the worst things that happened. And I remember Beslan, the school siege. I don't know if you remember that in 2004, but that was when... Of course, yeah. Chechens uh, held a, a school in, in Beslan. Yeah, English predominantly, yeah, exactly. They took over a... Uh, extremists took over a school in uh, southern Russia. And Russian TV was lying about everything that was happening. And there was complete free reign to go anywhere because there was no military presence. And you could literally walk into the gym during the siege as it happened. Mm. And, you know, I, I could look at Russian Spetsnaz in the eye as they turned a corner into a room opening fire. It was that close. That's an extraordinary situation to be in, to not have any impediment to where you go, to have people want you there because their voices aren't being heard and, and lies are being told. I, 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 years ago, I was, in, I was outside Kisangani and there was a group of Rwandans who had walked from Goma where they had been in camps after the genocide. Many of them had taken part in the genocide or their family members had. They were largely Hutu. 
they ended up in a forest outside Kisangani, and this was in like 1996, and it drove for hours on the backs of motorcycles, and we ended up in this little clearing in the forest where we found this group who had walked for the past year, and we shot interviews with them and kids, and we left, and they, days later, they just disappeared. I mean, they were just gone, and it later came out that they, lots of them were killed, but I, over the years, I've come to even, it was so surreal, and the whole disappearance of them was so haunting and surreal that there have been times I, I literally think I imagined the whole thing. And if, if it wasn't for the fact that I actually have some pictures of me being there and, and about, I don't know what the, I was on Lesbos when some Syrian refugees were coming and I actually met a guy who worked for an NGO and he had been there too. And it was the first time other than my little, my team of people I was with that I met somebody who had actually been there as well, who confirmed that in fact, it was real. It actually did happen. I suppose I suppose being aware that you're on the edges of what could be real, presumably, is just a reminder to you that uh, uh, that it is real, real. I mean, people are aware of the lies Russia is, is telling. They're aware that many in Russia, even some of families, you know, you, the, the man you talked to in the morgue, it, he was breaking down because of the the disconnect between what was actually happening and what his friends, his former friends, were saying about what was happening in, in Crimea. Russia does wars very differently to other nations. I mean, everybody lies, fine, but but the, the volume and the level of contrived fiction that you hear in a Russian conflict is 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 really sickening. I mean, I remember 2014, you know, you went through all the stuff about, are oh, these obvious Russian soldiers standing in Crimea, Russian soldiers? No, they're not. Russian says they're not. They're just guys. And, you know, you go through that sort of slightly comic fiction. But it, I remember a moment in 2015 in a village in the separatist areas where we came across this house that had, had half the side of it blown off and... Someone said, well, what happened was the, the parents, they'd had hot water for the first time in this house and they ran a bath for the kids and the parents went to the other room and then they had a thwack and a shell landed on the bath and killed three kids. And the only part of the house that was damaged was the bathroom. I curse every day those who killed my children and all those of the country, people who want to live peacefully. We lived, grew up, took our children to school. We found the parents. And the father was like catatonic in a kitchen, peeling beetroots for a wake. And the grandmother was wailing, holding up pictures, and the mother couldn't even speak. And because of the volume of fiction that we'd been exposed to by the separatists, by Russia's tendency to behave in wars, just unbelievable, endless, cynical mistruths. Part of my mind got so used to the idea of having to be careful of fakery that I couldn't embrace the fact that these, this was real until I'd left the house. And then I computed it all and I realised there's no way this scene could be contrived. Mm. God knows who fired that shell. They were both sides doing bad things at that time. But it, it, it rots the part of you which is engaging as a normal moral human to have to question that deeply, the basics of what's right in front of you, because of the cynicism that Moscow deploys in its wars. To actually have to say to yourself, well, hang on, don't I need to look for the bodies of these children to be sure this really happened and I'm not being fed a line here? Of course it was true. And I remember, you know, looking back now and seeing later reports of other people covering it and finding 
the children's bodies that this was the real thing but it just it corrodes the the basic trust between people that you need to do this job when you're confronted with that sort of misinformation and that particular instance has, has never really left me by just standing there and doubting that these people because you're training you're sort of telling you you need to be super careful Nick Ben Walsh thank you so much for talking Thanks for listening to whatever's just come out of my mouth. But <laughs> I always feel like I should say be careful, which seems like such a stupid phrase in, in given what's going on, but I, I hope you are careful. Take care, mate. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tug of War. We'll be releasing new episodes every Sunday and Wednesday. And for real-time updates, you can subscribe to CNN 5 Things wherever you listen. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by David Rind, Audrey Horwitz, Nathan Miller, and Paolo Ortiz. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Andrew Morse, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Elizabeth Roberts. Talk to you next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.